church, if you will open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. We began our look at the book of Isaiah, and I believe Brother Joe is planning on preaching on Isaiah next week as we'll still be in the book of Isaiah and our Bible reading plan. Uh, But as we looked at Isaiah last week and we saw the uh, pronouncement and the initial uh, call of Isaiah that he was the message he was delivering to the people of Judah and the pronouncement of their rebellion against the Lord and God's judgment against that. And we looked at, and I I made this mention, I used this analogy last week, that reading the prophets is kind of like unwrapping a present. And that really holds true this morning. As as you move through the prophets, you're just carefully unfolding a fold of wrapping paper, and a little bit more of what's underneath is revealing itself. And so as we move now this morning in in our reading plan, we're a little bit beyond this, but uh, we're now here sort of smack dab in the middle of the book of Isaiah. And this just begins to gloriously unfold God's plan, but it also unfolds a, a, a part of God's plan, which is harsh and hard to come to grips with, but it shows how God is working in the midst of all of this to show his goodness to humble his people at his goodness, and then to glorify his name. We've seen in Isaiah 9, behold, a son is born. To us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So God is revealing that he is sending one, that true son from the line of David, that true king who will reign. And he's sending this one to perfectly lead his people in righteousness. Now, this morning, as we look at chapter 25, there's a couple of things that I want to go over before we move into here, because there's so many things in our world that are unsure. What will the economy do tomorrow? What's going on in the housing market? Am I going to be able to provide for my family? Will the Packers make it to another Super Bowl, right? Like the important stuff is like, we just, we just don't know, right? So as sure as our world is, we are desperately hungry for assurance. There's so much that is unsure in our world. The thing that we want and that everybody wants, whether they know it or not, is assurance. We want to be sure in something. And therein lies One of the problems, our flesh, though, would rather have affirmation than assurance. Affirmation will have us feeling a false, temporal, and shallow sense of assurance. See, affirmation is just like a a partial, shallow, false sense of assurance. We would rather be affirmed than have a rock-solid assurance of what is right and wrong, good and bad, truth and untruth. And here's why. Because affirmation allows us to remain comfortable in our own self-governance. While assurance often pushes us to surrender our desires for what is right. So while we all want something that is sure and rock solid, steady, true, we would settle for a half-truth of affirmation rather than assurance because affirmation keeps us comfortable in our flesh. 
And so there's going to be a challenge in this morning's pronouncement, in all that Isaiah unfolds here, of where are you seeking affirmation and where are you seeking assurance? Because Isaiah shows us where his affirmation is not and where his assurance is. And so our challenge as the people of God, as the church, will be to challenge ourselves, to take a look in the mirror and say, am I seeking affirmation over assurance? Okay, and so when I, when I figure that out, where am I seeking affirmation? Am I seeking affirmation in the things of God? Am I seeking affirmation as to whether or not I am staying solid in the truths of God's word? Or also am I needing, in need of and seeking assurance in the things and the truths of God's word? So as we move here, I want to read our text for this morning. I invite you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 1. And verses 1 through 12 will be our text for this morning. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast the ground to the dust." This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, pray that you would illumine our understanding of it through the working of your spirit. God, that you would not only help us to just have a good knowledge of your word, but that knowledge would lead to a proper application, which would result in a, a rejoicing in your name, a glorification of your name, not only in our hearts, but that we would seek for your name to be glorified amongst all creation. God, I pray that you would reveal to us and in us the areas in which we have settled for affirmation. 
simply to be affirmed in the comfort of our flesh and that you would help us to be strong and confident in the assurance of you and the truths that you give us in your word of who you've revealed yourself to be and how you have made yourself known in the work of Christ on the cross. God, reveal these things to us, illumine these things to us, that we might walk in obedience to them and glorify your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, now as we read that, you might be saying to yourself, like, what is going on here? Because maybe you're not tracking along with our Bible reading, which is okay, I totally get it, right? Or maybe uh, it's been, you, you slept a little bit since you read this as part of our Bible reading. And so you're seeing, you're hearing all this imagery, these references to a bunch of stuff. So our text today comes in the middle of what is the third in a series of oracles. Oracles just simply a, a declaration, a message from God, right, that he is levying, he's, he's giving and communicating through the prophet Isaiah here. So this comes as right in the middle of the third of what is a series of oracles in which God is levying judgments on all the pagan nations surrounding Jerusalem. And then he's widening the scope of that to show his judgments against the whole world at the end of all time. And so as we look in the context of where this is, is focusing our attention, the timeline in which this is focusing our attention to, it's looking forward in hope to what God is accomplishing, has accomplished, is accomplishing, and will accomplish through all of his good works. So a show, this is a show of ultimate authority by God in which he displays his sovereignty to both elevate and bring low holy and pagan peoples alike, and indeed bend all of history for his good purposes. So we started the call and we started the, the message of Isaiah last week, and we're looking at Isaiah 1, and there's declared that there's going to be judgment against God's people because of their rebellion and their disobedience. And then we move from there, we see that God is saying he's going to use the pagan nations as the saw in which he is going to bring down the forest, right? But then he here is reminding the pagan nations that they are but a saw in his hand. And so they, they are the, the tool in which he is using and purposing for ultimately his good purposes and his perfect will. And so he, he, he wants not only his people to understand that judgment is coming against them for their disobedience and that he is working to bring about something new, but he wants the pagan nations and indeed the entire world to understand that what he is doing is, is purposing to bring all to himself, to, to bring all peoples to an understanding of who he is. Right? So you go back to even to one chapter. Just turn back. You might even not have to turn a page in your Bible, uh, depending on you know, the type and how it's laid out. But to chapter 24. And we read this, just to give us some, some more context here. So we read, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. All right? So this is not like a happy picture of what God is, is levying against the earth here. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. 
As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Sign me up, right? Like, so this is not a picture here that there's an escape for anyone who stands on their own two feet, right? This is, the Lord is saying this judgment that I am levying is against all sinfulness. And that's what he's getting ready to do here. So again, this is what we read before coming into our text today. That a completely just God is levying judgment against a completely unjust world that has transgressed his law completely. Right? So just understand the totality of what's being laid out here before we move in. So lest any of us forget, this is the position of all mankind. On our own, we stand guilty of having transgressed God's law. And that's what God is issuing here as his judgment. But this brings to light the reality that we cannot keep God's law. No matter how hard we try, we cannot keep God's law perfectly. So what's the point of the law? Many people ask, and you might be asking that yourself to this point. Because as we've seen, God's purposes and and story of salvation history unfolding, moving through the Bible chronologically. We've seen God give revelation of himself. We've seen God issue his law that he might preserve for himself a people who would then be a shining beacon of his grace to all the nations. And guess what? They couldn't keep the law. And he showed forbearing grace time and time again. And they continually show themselves rebellious. So what's the point of the law, we might be tempted to ask. It reveals the sinful nature of our hearts and points us to the grace of God to provide salvation in a Savior. And that's, the, that's what is unfolding here. God is like saying, look, none of you can keep my law. And therefore, you are all guilty and deserving of this punishment that is coming at the end of time. And so it is with Isaiah as he hears all of this and he prepares to preach it to the people because that's the job of the prophet, right? Is to, to receive the message from the Lord and then preach it to the people. This is what he says in verse one. So understanding like all that lies ahead, all that God has just said, all the judgment, the harsh realities that are coming to bear against sin. And we read this in verse one of our text today. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Now, in your mind, you might be saying that doesn't quite quite match up. We just heard of all this judgment and the, the earth is going to be twisted and its people scattered and all this stuff is happening. And then Isaiah says, oh Lord, you are my God. And he says, you've done wonderful things. Salvation, judgment, blessing, curse, almost all of the pronouncements of such in the Bible are communal in scope but reach down to the individual level. So Isaiah's response to hearing of God's plans of judgment against the whole world are that of praise and worship. 
I mean, think about just that phrase alone, wonderful thing. You have done wonderful things. Why should Isaiah be able to rejoice in the wonderful things which God has done when this is coming off the back of having just handed down terrifying judgments and oracles concerning Judah, pagan nations, and the entire earth? Like, you might be saying, maybe Isaiah wasn't hearing God, like, clearly there. No, that's not the issue. What God has laid out is that as much as man would like to think we are in control, there is no self-governance. And this terrifies our fleshly nature. And we will fight against this idea, tooth and nail. Why why would we fight against the idea that there is no self-governance? Because we find assurance from being the one who is in control. We find affirmation from being the one who is in control. And the first point on your outline comes to bear here this morning as we see Isaiah's response to all that God has laid out. Assurance does not come from self-governance, but from surrender. The things which God has done, will do, and is doing in this moment could only be seen and understood as wonderful if two things are first understood. Because, I mean, Isaiah here says, you have done wonderful things. But what are these wonderful things based on? Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. So God is not here acting on a whim, and Isaiah sees that and understands that. This is part of God's providential working. But still, how could you say it's wonderful? Well, you can only see things like this as wonderful if you understand two things. First, that God is good. If we don't firmly grasp this truth, we will endlessly be moved about by the whims of our own emotions. The knowledge of God as good anchors us in our most desperate of times and it clearly focuses our praise in the best of times. So that no matter what is happening around us, if we know that God is good and that he is in control, then we can have assurance Not in what we can do or how we can act or respond to the situation at hand or all that we've prepared or or all that we can do, right? But our assurance comes that God is good and he is in control. So even in our most desperate times, we can be anchored and tethered to that truth. And in our best of times, it focuses our praise so that if everything's going good, well, then where's that coming from? The giver of all good things. So when we lose sight of this truth, the minute that we are presented with even the smallest inconvenience or the biggest trial or the difficulty that's in between, the minute we lose sight of this truth and those things, trial, inconvenience, difficulty, present themselves, we'll be pushed to bitterness, anger, despair, or all manner of negativity. Why? Because we don't see everything as being part of God's ultimately good purposes. And when we don't have that anchor 
that God is good and we don't know that and rest in that, any little inconvenience to the biggest trial will push us to bitterness, anger, and despair and all manner of negativity. So don't allow yourself to stew in that state, church, because this will fester. Because it might start with a small inconvenience. And if that festers, if it stays there, it will just develop into more bitterness, more anger, more despair. And it will fester and produce all sorts of negative emotions. And before you know it, you look around and rather than seeing God's good grace, the good grace of a mighty God and everything around you, you see nothing but bitterness. The second reality which we have to come to grasp with, if we're going to see even things such as this as wonderful, First, we have to rest and be affirmed and, and have that anchor that God is good. The second thing is that he governs all things according to the counsel of his will. So knowing this and resting in it will open us up to a world of peace in which we know without a shadow of a doubt that no matter what, God is working to glorify himself and to bring about our good in that. When we grasp these two truths, that God is good and he governs all things according to the counsel of his will, we are able to rejoice no matter the circumstance, no matter the news, no matter the results, no matter the inconvenience, the trial, the despair. If we know that God is good and that he is governing all things to the counsel of his will, then we can find true peace in the midst of that. Or in the good things, we can properly focus our praise to God, who is the giver of all good things. And I think this is just so cool. So a couple of weeks back, we, we were in Second Chronicles, well, more than a couple of weeks, right? But uh, just a few weeks back, we were in Second Chronicles. We looked at this story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib, right? And Sennacherib, the ruler, is coming, and he issues out all this psychological warfare, like, in whom are you relying, right? You remember that question, where's your trust? And uh, he's trying to get the people to realize, like, look, all the other gods of all these other nations that I've conquered couldn't protect them, so why do you think your God is going to protect you? I want you to turn real quick to, to 2 Kings, okay? So keep your finger there in Isaiah. I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 19, because... So we, we looked at that story in 2 Chronicles, and 2 Kings 19 contains the, um, the, the first telling of that story, right? Because the, the, Chronicles, again, uses Kings uh, and Samuel as his source text. And so here, again, in that story, because that's the context of Isaiah's message here, is that all these oracles are being given at the same time that this is happening with Sennacherib and Hezekiah, okay? So in this story, Hezekiah hears of the oncoming invasion, and you can look at verse 1 of 19, and he, he tears his clothes, and he covers himself with sackcloth, and he goes to the house of the Lord. And so that means he's going to the house of the Lord to lament. He's not going to the house of the Lord and, and saying, like, I know you're going to give victory in this. And so if you'll remember, when we read that story, 
Hezekiah goes to Isaiah to pray. And so I want us to, to read part of what Isaiah speaks about here. And so he comes to Isaiah, and if you look um, at verse 6 there of chapter 19, you can see Isaiah's initial response because Hezekiah sends people to come to Isaiah, and Isaiah responds, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. So the Lord's saying, don't be afraid because they've levied words against me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him. So the Lord kind of reassures that he's in control here. So I want us to go now to verse 25. Because here we see Isaiah's uh, speaking in and the Lord uh, speaking through Isaiah. And this is what the Lord says. Speaking through Isaiah Referring to Sennacherib's fall, reassuring King Hezekiah that he is in control. And this is what the Lord says, verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass." like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So that's the, the word of the Lord to Sennacherib, speaking and reassuring Hezekiah that he's in control and, and saying, like, look, have you not heard about me that I've planned it from of old? That again, that you would levy all this destruction and then after you levy the destruction that I planned out, I'm going to lead you back to your own country with a bit in your mouth and a hook in your nose. And so now we come back and we see Isaiah in his own prophecy here is saying, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Do you know these truths, church? Do you live these truths that God is good and that he governs all things to the counsel of his will? Because God's word boasts of these things over and over and over again. So at the end of the day, are you seeking to make your life matter based off of what you can do, provide, and be? Are you seeking affirmation about your life? Or do you have the confidence that in surrendering all to Christ, you already matter based off what he has done and what God has purposed to accomplish in and through you? So if assurance does not come from self-governance, but from surrender, what or who do I need to surrender to in order to find assurance? Well, let's keep reading. So we're back in Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. So do you see the similar language here 
by what he announced or pronounced to Sennacherib and, and what he's saying here. You made the city, he fortified the city, ruined. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. So at a time when people might be tempted to fear Sennacherib or the other surrounding nations, what the Lord is using to bring judgment upon his people, Isaiah says, no, God, you're the one who's made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Isaiah sees God's ultimate purpose, plan, and even goodness in all that God has laid out. So at the end of it all, people will be moved to a proper fear and reverence of him. That's the point here. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, Lord. So not just any people, but from the most powerful on down, God has destroyed everything that man could find confidence in. Everything that his people might seek to find confidence in. Everything that pagan nations might seek to find confidence in. Isaiah says, you're the one, you made it a heap. And why have you done it? That strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Not fear the surrounding nations, not fear what is to come, not fear anything, but they will fear and have a proper reverence of you. And so moving along in your outline, you'll see there uh, this um, next couple of sub points is what's next. So the people of God, right? That's what we're talking about here is, is God drawing to himself and making for himself a people. And, and where are, do the people of God find confidence then if God destroys everything of this earth that we would attempt to find confidence in? The people of God find confidence in God's providence, and so this is one of those that we can look at and we can nod our head and we can maybe even say amen silently, right? But then continue living as if it's not true at all. Right? This is one of those that we can just kind of like, yes. But then our lives don't reflect that, yes. Our thoughts don't reflect that, yes. Where is our confidence? Is it in our well-laid plans? Is our confidence in our money? Is it in the safety of ourselves or our loved ones? Is our confidence in jobs? Is our confidence in horses or chariots? How many of us go about each and every day making our plans solely based off what satisfaction or what monetary gain or comfort or physical pleasure can be brought to us with not even a nod or a thought of God's governance or providential working of all things? We read this in James chapter 4. As James brings about this same thought and idea, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? James says. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
So are we placing our confidence in the mist that is this life or on the good, eternal, joyous plans of our creator? Are we placing our confidence in the city which is to be made a heap? Are we placing our confidence in the fortified city that will become a ruin? Are we placing our confidence in the foreigner's palace, which is a city no more, never to be rebuilt? Are we placing our confidence in the mist that is this life? Or are we placing our confidence in the plans of our creator? Is that where we find our confidence? As we continue reading, we see where Isaiah's confidence in God's plans comes from. Pick back up verse 4. For. So again, anytime we see that word, it's like saying, this is why. Right? Essentially. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. So those who trust in the midst of this life They trust in fortified cities which are destroyed in God's providence. God's people, those who have been brought low by the world, they have a stronghold in God. Notice that here. So we see all this talk that those of this world, they have a fortified city. But God has been a stronghold to the poor. So it one-ups that, right? So when we look at the the rubble and the heap of verses 2 through 3, and then we have this this contrasting stronghold in verses 4 through 5. So those who trust in the world, everything lies in a heap of ruin. Those who trust in God, who have been brought low by this world, so the poor, the needy, God has been a stronghold to them. A stronghold to the needy and his distress. A shelter from the storm. A shade from the heat. So like a cloud protecting his people from the heat is God. Breath of the ruthless like a storm against the wall. And like a heat in a dry place. But you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. So are you trusting in the mist that is this life? Because the next point there is that God's people rest in God's faithfulness. That's the idea here, is that we've got all this ruin, this heap, this rubble. But you, you have been, you always have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy, a shelter from the storm. Ultimately, if our confidence is found in anything or anyone but God, we will have no rest. You know the many ways in which God has shown himself faithful in your own life. We know the many ways in which God has shown himself faithful in his word. Either we find rest in that, either we find rest in the truth that he is steadfastly faithful or we have no rest at all. So if you need rest this morning, I pray you find your rest in God's faithfulness displayed in Christ on the cross. 
if you're a believer and find yourself in a place of restlessness and don't know where to turn, realign, recalibrate, return to the cross. If you don't know where else to go, just go back to the cross and there see the value, the worth, the dignity, the plans formed of old. Because as we continue reading, we see that that salvation, that hope, that future forward-looking firm foundation of God's steadfast faithfulness is what Isaiah points to. Pick back up in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. So starting there, again, back in verse 6, we see on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people. So is this giving out about some universalism or, or just everybody, right, is, is covered? No. So on this day, his church made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, right? So all peoples will be represented there. And every bit of our sorrow will be made complete. And we will be able to look at it all and say... Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. So on that day, as we look back on every bit of, of despair, darkness, cloud, depression, anxiety, fear, frustration, bitterness, anger, as we look back on all of it, we'll look back on all of it and see how God was using every bit of it to shape us for his glory. We'll see how he was using it for his good purposes. And we'll be able to say, you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old. So again, we see here where our ultimate assurance comes from. It comes from knowing that God is good and that he governs all things according to the counsel of his will. So ultimate assurance comes from knowing the goodness of God. So as Isaiah looks at all this, here's all that God is getting ready to do. He's not overwhelmed at what lies ahead. He's not distraught by where he's at in the moment. He sees God's ultimate working of all of this as bringing about his good purposes. This is what anchors the people of God. Not that we are constantly having to look back at the faithfulness of God and say that God was faithful. Yes, we do that. But where does that faithfulness then focus us? That as we look back at the faithfulness of God, we look to the faithfulness of God and see how he was faithful in his word and the promises therein, and then it focuses us forward in full assurance that he is good and that his plans will come to pass. So no matter where we're at in the moment, no matter how dark it seems now, we always can look forward and see the hope that awaits, that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all his people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
Paul quotes this exact thing, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or it'll, it'll be on the screen, or if you just want to make a note, but 1 Corinthians 15. Toward the end of the first letter to the Corinthians that we have, we see Paul reassuring them, the believers of this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He continues to say the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So for Paul, he's looking back and he's seeing this promise of God and he's realizing this promise in the cross of Christ. And he's saying, like, be steadfast, immovable because of this truth, because of God's faithfulness and because he has shown himself faithful again in the cross of Christ, we can continue to look forward knowing that he will show himself faithful again. At the end of all things. So don't go about seeking transformation without regeneration. He says the, the perishable must put on imperishable. So don't, don't just do good things with your perishable body and think that that accomplishes anything, but rather you're going to have to put on the imperishable. You have to be made new. This last Wednesday, I made a mistake. And I, uh, as, as I was preparing for our Wednesday night prayer time in the Psalms, I, uh, that morning as I was doing my daily reading, I read, um, we were supposed to read Psalm 132 and I saw the two as a six, right? But the Lord totally used that because it was just a great time we had in Psalm 136. So I prepared for Psalm 136. I was supposed to prepare for 132. Nonetheless, so this is what we read in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And so this, of course, is the psalm that just continues to say after everything, and it recounts the history of God uh, acting in salvation history to draw his people to himself. And it, you just continually repeat, for his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. Why? For he is good. And so as we look at what Paul says here, and as we look at what Isaiah says here, and we know Isaiah's already began to point toward Christ, and we look at Paul saying this has been realized and will ultimately be realized at the end in Christ, 
And that brings us to the final point there on your outline, that God's goodness can only be known in beholding the lordship of Christ. So we continue reading there, and we see this in chapter 25 here back in Isaiah. Picking back up in verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hand out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hand. So he's saying that the pagan nation will try to rise, but the Lord will lay him low in his pride. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. The author of Hebrews, who of course focuses our attention squarely on Christ as the ultimate, as seen throughout all of salvation history, and saying that all of God's promises have been fulfilled and realized in Christ, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And so it is only in looking to the cross of Christ that we can realize the true goodness of God. Otherwise, we will be continually brought to despair by thinking, what's the point of the law? If we never look to Christ, we'll never realize the goodness of this cry here in Isaiah. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the point of the law, to bring us to this point of realizing our own sinfulness. So therefore, it is only through Christ and his perfect fulfillment of the law and his putting to death and destroying the one who has the power of death. Therefore, delivering those of us who through fear have been subject to death and lifelong slavery by our own sinfulness. Are you seeking affirmation of the flesh? Are you seeking to remain in that lifelong slavery to death? Or... Are you seeking the assurance of God's good providence manifested in Christ, which calls you to awake, O oh sleeper, to realize his goodness manifested in the work of Christ on the cross. Submit and surrender to that and there find complete rest, joy, and peace. Not in what you can do or have done or will be able to do, but in what he has accomplished. And it's there, church, it's there that we find the assurance that assurance is in Christ alone. And it doesn't come from self-governance, but it comes by surrendering completely to him. So that's the call here. 
is prepare for that day, not by readying your hands, not by trying to do in your mortal flesh what can only be done in a regenerative flesh, but by surrendering to the work of Christ on the cross. And that goes for all. If you're not a believer, then that's the first step. If you are a believer, keep doing that. Keep surrendering. Keep putting to death the works of the flesh. Keep putting to death the cloud of gloom that would set to become, come over you. Because on that day, he's going to remove it. At the end of time, will you be satisfied in having affirmed yourself in the thinkings and the longings and the desires of your flesh? Or will you be finding ultimate satisfaction in the assurance of having surrendered to the work of Christ on the cross? Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. And we pray that you would continue to assist us, to stir our hearts in rejoicing in the truths in which you have laid forth in your word that as long as we seek affirmation in this life, as long as we seek affirmation in our flesh, we will be ultimately restless. Therefore, God, help us all find assurance of salvation in your goodness, in your plan fulfilled in Christ which we will see ultimately fulfilled on that last day. God, help us not to rest or trust in chariots or horses or bank accounts or jobs or safety. And help us to rest in your ultimate working of all things to the counsel of your will that you might be glorified and that we find our joy in that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.